Thanks for listening and welcome to the CoachMaze.com podcast, where high school basketball coaches can turn to find that one takeaway to add to their already successful programs. Like you, I'm a high school coach, so let me know on Twitter at Coach J. Mays what your takeaway from today's talk was. Welcome coaches, it's Coach Jason Mays, and thank you for tuning in to the CoachMaze.com podcast. Today, we're going to bring you Preston Spradlin, the head men's basketball coach at Moorhead State University in Moorhead, Kentucky. Moorhead State is a member of the Ohio Valley Conference. He just finished his third season as the head coach at Moorhead and his 11th season overall working with a Division I program. He was named the head coach in March of 2017 after having to serve as the interim coach during the 16-17 season when his head coach at the time was removed. At that point in time, they were 2-7. and seven. Then Preston took over. He guided Moorhead to a 12-9 and nine record the rest of the way, a 10-6 and six mark in OVC play, which ranked second in the league. Prior to taking over as the head coach, uh, Coach Spradlin was named to the NABC 2016 Under Armour 30-under-30 30 30 team, which recognizes 30 men's basketball coaches across the country that are under the age of 30. You're going to love in this broadcast here um, how he tells about his process to scouting opponents uh, and preparing to play, uh, things that he learned when he was on the staff at the University of Kentucky. While he was at UK with Coach Calipari, uh, his duties included film breakdown, creating and maintaining playbooks, and assisting with opponent scouting and day-to-day operations. With no further ado... Preston Spradlin, head coach of Moorhead State University. So, Coach Spradlin, um, pleasure to, to be in your office today here at Moorhead State University, um, doing great things here at Moorhead. But let's just dive right into this interview. Um, let's start with your best high school experience, Coach. Um, what rings true to you? Uh, what, what will forever be in your heart and mind about your experience at Betsy Lane High School in Eastern Kentucky? Well, first of all, appreciate you having me on. Um, you know, I, I think my most my most impactful memory as a player playing there um, is when I realized that I really wanted to coach. And I think I always knew I wanted to coach. And um, I wasn't a great player. We didn't have a ton of, of great success, but I did have some some unbelievable people around me. You know, I played for Brent Rose, mm. was our head coach there. Uh, he's now at Prestonsburg High School, and he's he's been uh, as close as to me as anybody. And uh, his his assistants Doug Hopkins and then his father Doug uh, his his Doug Hopkins his father was was uh, my freshman coach and so all those guys and uh, you know my sophomore year we were having a tough year um, and, and we had some really talented players and we just didn't have great buy in and attitudes and, and all those things and and we weren't winning you know about a third of the way into the year and I remember we had a bad game bad attitudes, bad body language, the whole deal. And I wasn't a starter. I was playing, you know, sparing minutes as a sophomore, you know, probably 160 pounds, could, you know, barely, <laughs> barely get it up from the three-point line and all that. But I'll never forget, I, I went in after that game and uh, and I saw Coach Rose and, and the rest of the staff, and they were just completely depleted, you know, with our team. Uh, and disappointed because we did have a lot of talent. And we've all been there as a coach before when you have those moments. And I remember going in and talking to Coach and just saying, hey, listen, whatever we've got to do to win, I'm in. If, if you need to coach me harder than everybody else, if you need to yell at me more so that I can set an example of how to respond and, and all those things, you know, I'm in. I want to do it because I just want to win. That's all I really care about. And uh, and so, you know, that that kind of opened up the door for me and it's helped me in my coaching career to, to, to have conversation with players and to build trust with them. And uh, from that point on, coach did that. You know, he was really tough on me and I wasn't a starter at the time. I certainly wasn't the best player. It was just a sophomore and uh, it made me a better player and it made our team better. And uh, later on in that year, I got I got put into the starting lineup. And um, it wasn't my stats that helped us win. I think it was just the buy-in and the attitude and the work ethic and the trust that it kind of 
was contagious amongst everybody, and we started winning. You know, we went all the way to the finals of the, uh, the All-A Regional there. We played at Pikeville High School. We lost to Paintsville. And, um, and, and so that, for me, that was a, a great moment because I always knew I wanted to coach, but it was the first time that I had put the two things together as a player and a coach. And um, from that point on, uh, you know, my relationship with Coach Rose has, has really been special and uh, with all of our coaches that we had. And uh, we just had a great relationship for the rest of my time as a player. And I became a better player, you know, became a starter and, and all those things. And there's great memories that come along with that and, you know, scoring a lot of points or winning certain games. But the one that sticks out the most for me uh, would be my, my first ever player-coach meeting that I had. And, um, you know, I, I think about that often when I have a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings with my team. You know, it's funny that you talk about your best high school experience. You know, at the core of that is, is the relationship you have with your coach, you know, and it sort of ring, brings to the forefront, you know, really what we're doing here as coaches is mentoring young men through the game of basketball. And uh, that's, that's interesting. So you, you graduate from Betsy Lane High School in uh, 05, am I right? 05. 05, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you go to Alice Lloyd. Um, now, did not many people recruit you? Uh, yeah. Did you want to stay home? How did, how did that process they, work They out? weren't exactly wearing the phone. <laughs> you know, 6'3", six, six, unathletic, uh, streaky shooter. Um, you know, uh, and so I went to, uh, went to Alice Lloyd. My, uh, my wife went there as well. And so, uh, you know, we got together when we were and seniors in high school, been together ever since, and obviously went to college. So that helped with the decision. Mm -hmm. Had a few other options, you know, to, to go to Wise and a couple other places in state or uh, locally, but decided to go there. Had a lot of friends that were there, uh, a lot of them that I'd played with that were either on the varsity team at Alice Lloyd or they were on the JV team. And so uh, went there, uh, played very little a as a freshman. Uh, really not much at all. We had a, had a really tough year, and uh, but I, I loved it. You know, I loved being in, in college. I loved playing college basketball and just, you know, spending all your time in the gym, you know, and, and, and figuring out ways to get better and uh, and just that whole experience, you know, of, of being over there. And, and Alice Lloyd's a, a, an awesome place. It's not a place that's for everybody. You know, it, you're going to go there and you're going to go to school with people who are from the same areas as you. You know, they have a county that – a county uh, limit that they can recruit from and, and that all their students come from. And so it makes that transition to college much easier because you're, you're with people that grew up just like you did. Yeah. Um, Coach, That what is it that is – and maybe I'm overly emotional about this because I don't know if you know this or not, but my – I'm not from Owsley County, but my entire family is from Owsley County, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Um uh, my dad is from there. My mom is from there. They both went to Owsley County High School. My um, Most of my family still lives there. Uh, my Uncle Mike is a circuit court clerk. My Uncle Duran was a, is the retired athletic director there after 27 years. And um, What is it about Eastern Kentucky basketball, high school basketball in Eastern Kentucky, that is special? I remember when I was coaching at Georgetown College, we had a lot of pride in recruiting Eastern Kentucky kids. We thought we recruited Eastern Kentucky kids as, as, as good as anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go back to the kids we signed, Russ Chadwell out of Clay County, Shannon Hoskins out of Clay County. Uh, you know, we, we signed Todd Cox out of Harlan. I mean, we signed some really good players that were all-state Kentucky all-stars from Eastern Kentucky. And every time I would go recruit Eastern Kentucky, I was like, this is the best day of my life. I love driving to the mountains. I love going to the games. Um, what is it about Eastern Kentucky high school basketball that's special in your mind? You know, a couple things. I think, number one, there's a lot of pride in it. You know, people just love basketball throughout the state. And once you get into Eastern Kentucky, basketball is the biggest sport. You know, I know as of late we've had a ton of success with football, with Johnson Central and Belford and Pikeville, and, that, and that's great. But it wasn't always like that. You know, basketball has always been uh, the lifeblood, especially in Eastern Kentucky. Um, and I think, you know, when you're talking about players from Eastern Kentucky, you mentioned a bunch of them. I think there's a certain toughness level that, that comes from those kids. And I think it's the way that you're brought up. You know, you're, you're brought up uh, doing work at home. You're, you're brought up working a summer job. You're not afraid to do those types of things. 
And uh, that all translates. It translates to being a good player. It translates to your development as a man if you get the opportunity to become a player. And I've heard countless stories of just uh, family members of mine who have moved off to different areas of the state and gotten jobs. And, and almost every one of them to a man, their employer has said, can you go get more guys like you from where you're from? Because you, you just work circles around people. And uh, so I think there's a lot of pride in that. And there's a toughness that comes with it that obviously we all uh, place a lot of value in as coaches. So let's go back to your time at, at Alice Lloyd College. You graduate in 09, and um, your next step, if I'm not mistaken, was a graduate assistant at the University of Kentucky with uh, Coach Cal. Mm-hmm. So how did you transition from a small uh, NAIA school in Pippa Passes, Kentucky, not County, Kentucky, to the grandest stage in all of college basketball. How did how did you work that? How did that happen? Well, I got I got to rewind a little bit. You know, when I was in college, um, you know, I knew I wanted to coach. My my goal was to be a high school coach and a teacher. And uh, once I got into college, I just fell in love with college basketball. I loved the travel. I loved all the things that went into it. And so I started to get the idea that maybe I wanted to try to shoot for coaching in college. And um, I'll never forget after my freshman year. Our coach, he called me and our point guard at the time, Chris Hurt, played at Johnson Central. I don't know if you remember him. He was a tough little player. Uh, he called us up and, and he said, hey, I got a letter from uh, University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. They're looking for guys to work their basketball camps. You guys want to do it? And so sure enough, we loaded up. We went down there and we wrecked basketball games from 8 in the morning till 11 at night. And, uh, and, and did a, had a great time, did a good job. And with that, I got to know Coach Shulman. Uh, John Shulman. John? Is John, yeah, yeah. great guy. He's that coach of Alabama Huntsville. He sure is. And yeah. he, he's been so good to me. And so this was 15 years ago at this point. And, uh, and so he said, hey, why don't you guys come back next week? We're going to have an individual camp. You guys get to coach some kids. So we did. We came back and did that. And uh, I remember asking Coach Shulman, because uh, he would, at that time, he'd take all the coaches out to dinner, which I thought was just awesome. And um, I said, hey, you know, could I pick your brain when camp is over with? And I'll never forget, he got out his phone, he gave me his cell phone, he said, absolutely, so camp's over with, you call me. So camp got over with a day or so later, late at night, and I, I called him. He picks up the phone, he's on the, he's on the court refing a ball game. Division one head coach jumps out there and, and is refing a game and doing all that. And so I go over and I just see the energy that he's got, and he sets me down afterwards and he gives me some great advice that I'll never forget. He said, in this business, who you know gets you there, what you know is going to keep you there. Mm-hmm. He said, you've already got me as a contact. You're welcome to come back here every summer, but I don't want you to. You need to go try to work camp everywhere that you can. So the next three summers, I literally would work camp everywhere. I worked at Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia Tech, Memphis, Bellarmine. I mean, you name it. If there was a camp that I could go to, I would I would do it. And so uh, I, every summer, I just worked camps. And um I got to know so many people. There's tons of guys in this business, Division One level, that are head coaches, that are assistants, uh, that I worked camps with. That we stayed in dorm rooms together, and we ate in cafeterias and all this stuff. And uh, so through that, you know, I knew I really wanted to coach and, and get into college and try to become a graduate assistant. And um, so when I, I got ready to graduate, our season was over my senior year at Alice Lloyd. Um, I didn't know where I was going to go or how I was going to do it. My plan was to actually come back and be an assistant at Alice Lloyd after graduation. And um, we were out at the WYNT Mountain Classic. I know you know that tournament. You know it well. And my sixth grade math teacher, Jim Bill Frazier, is, uh, they, 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 they say he's the Dick Vitale of the mountains because he, he, does, he does such a great job commentating these games. Uh, he's got an awesome voice. Uh, he was commentating the game, so I go up to speak to him in, a, in at halftime of one of these games. And he says, you know, Preston, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, you know, I, I don't know. I said, I, I, I want to become a grad assistant. I want to start coaching. I want to continue to get my master's, and, and that's what I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to do it. And um, I, apparently I had just told that to enough people and made them believe it. And so Jim Bill picked up the phone. He made a few phone calls for me to some people that he knew. Uh, one of those people people happened to be Wayne Martin, mm. um, and I didn't know Wayne, didn't know him at all, and uh, started to to find out some some information about Wayne and his background in coaching and 
how our paths had been very similar from from being from Pikeville and and all those things and um, and so a couple weeks later uh, Wayne got in touch with me and said hey why don't you come down and let's meet he's the president at uh, WYT or WKYT mm-hmm. in Lexington at the time so I put a suit on I drove down there went and met with Wayne had no idea what I was you know we were going to talk about. And uh, it was the it was the first business meeting I was ever a part of, and I remember walking in the door. He didn't sit behind the desk. We sat in a sitting area in his office. He told me to take my tie off, and we just talked basketball. And he asked me what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it. And um, I'll never forget that meeting because after that I had a few opportunities. He made some calls for me to some people that he knew to get my foot in the door. And I remember telling him, I don't need much help. I just need a foot in the door. If you can get me in front of somebody, I'll take care of the rest, and and that's what he did. And um, so I first got on as a as a basically a video intern at Kentucky. I wasn't hired by Cal or his staff. I was uh, going to work in the video room uh, for a guy named Tim Asher. Tim's been there for twenty some years. Uh, he's a legend at Kentucky, video guy. And uh, once I got there, you know, I had no idea what I was in for. I wasn't allowed on the court. Um, I wasn't working players out or anything like that. It was it was essentially you're going to do anything and everything involved with video, and so I wasn't real excited about that. Especially I'd just been a player, and so told that you can't get on the court, you can't do those things. And really, I didn't have any connection, or I didn't know Cal or anybody like that. And so when I got there, that was Cal's first year as head coach at, at Kentucky. I didn't get there until August. And we had eight guys who were in non-coaching roles. Uh, so we obviously had three assistants, and then we had a bunch of guys that were uh, GAs, um, assistant ops, all those types of things. So Scott Paget was on that staff. Tony Delk was on that staff. Uh, we had a guy named Jason Wahlberg, whose dad is Vance Wahlberg, who invented the dribble drive, was on that staff. Uh, we had a bunch of guys that, that they all had a connection some way, somehow, either from being a player or you know a relative who was a coach or whatever that may have been. And so I didn't have any of that stuff. I was literally the guy nobody knew. And um, so I just figured I was gonna go back to what we talked about and what I value about Eastern Kentucky people is I was just gonna try to outwork everybody. So I came early and I stayed late and I had about one job to do when I first got there. It was to you know log games and practices and things like that. And uh, just by being around all the time, uh, I, I started getting new duties. And I had to figure out, you know, the technology piece. I couldn't hook up a VCR when I got to that video room. That's God's honest truth. And so I had to spend hours and hours of my time uh, just learning how to do, you know, video editing on the, on the computer and, and all this, this stuff. And, um, you know, through that, I started to build rapport and relationships with the coaches uh, that they would come in and they'd want things done. And, and you know, when you work for, for Cal, he's, he's got ideas like no other. They just come to him all the time. And so there's a lot of spur of the moment things that need to be done. And the more organized and more prepared and the more energy you have to match that, the better off you're going to be. And so uh, opportunities would just pop up here and there to show that I was willing to do whatever it took and uh, that I was organized and efficient with what I was doing. And so I went from having one job to having 10. And it just kind of went from there. And, um, you know, I'll never forget one of the very first practices, team practices that we had there that year. I'm sitting there courtside. And uh, just before the practice, you know, Coach Robick, John Robick, who's who's really been my, my closest mentor in this business. He's been with Cal 20-some years, and he's as, he's as good a man as I've ever been around. He means the world to me. Um, but I got to be so close with him because he did all the scouting. He was the X's and O's guy, and he was the logistics guy for Cal with everything. And uh, so I kind of became his right-hand man. And I'll never forget the first thing I was asked to do was, hey, listen, we're getting ready to start practice. You need to stack the practices. Okay, great. What would you like me to stat? Well, I don't know. I'll just let you know as we get going. And so that turned into I was the keeper of the stats during practice. Maybe we were statting three things, four things, five things. And then I'd have to give those to Cal every day after practice. And I remember the first practice that I, I typed up a, a stat sheet and took it into him. And he glanced at it and he threw it back at me. He said, this isn't how I like my stats. 
well, nobody would tell me how he liked his stats. So by trial and error, I just tried to figure it out and do it differently and eventually got it to a point where he liked it. A uh, few practices later, we get into, he starts putting in a play or two, and I'll never forget Orlando Antigua looks over and he says, hey, Pete, write this down. I'd never documented plays in my life. I didn't know how to draw plays up. So I'm starting to write down all the plays. And so through things like that, I became the keeper of the playbook. Nobody on staff ever had to write down a play. Cal didn't have to do it. They didn't have to remember it. I just became the guy that did that. And through trial and error and a lot of practice and learning terminology and just a lot of time, uh, became good at it. And uh, then I got segued into helping with scouting and then uh, doing advanced scouting of opponents. And Coach Robick and I got to where we worked on those things together. And then just being around, you know, you, you get a lot of duties that, people don't realize that you have to do, you know, whether it's making sure players are getting from point A to point B. Um, and you do those things, you do a good job with them, all of a sudden they become your responsibility. And they're there and they're yours forever. And there would be lots of opportunities that or situations that, you know, a coach would come into the film room and say, hey, hey, we, we got to get this done. Such and such didn't do this the right way. And so I really learned a lot about integrity and trust about being on a staff because very quickly, I would say, hey, listen, you know, I don't know who was supposed to do it, but I'll do it. And I would, and I learned not to throw people under the bus. And, and so all of a sudden, if it was a job that someone else on staff um, may have been given initially and they didn't do it or didn't want to do it or didn't do it in a timely manner, all of a sudden that came to me. And uh, so that was kind of the theme of everything. And, uh, and then summers came around and I got to run the camps, which I had great experience with from all the time that I spent. Uh, in the summers, and, and I became the guy that would I would hire 50 coaches every year to work camp, and I would plan the camp, and I would organize it, and I would do all those things. And, and camp at Kentucky is a is a big big deal. You know, by the time I left there, we were doing two overnight camps where we had 500 kids in each camp, and then we would do three two day uh, father son camps where we would have 600 fathers and sons in each camp. And uh, we had it down to a science as to how we would do that. Did, did you start the fantasy camp at Kentucky too? No, I can't take credit for starting it. Yeah. But I was I was heavily involved with running it. It was ran. It was started by a company named Pro Camps. Yeah, a guy named Greg Darbyshire does those with everybody. So we had one of the first fantasy camps that a college coach was putting on, and so I was really involved with that. And that was an unbelievable experience just to be a part of that. And it was a. It was a big deal. It was a great experience. Well, let me let me let me back you up here a little bit. So we, you know, you, you sort of evolve into uh, a a reliable member of the staff uh, from an administrative from an administrative standpoint um, that had to be good with technology. Mm-hmm. And you, to quote you, you said you couldn't even turn on a VCR. Facts. Which, yeah, absolutely. So, talk for a moment to high school coaches right now. And most high school coaches have Huddle mm-hmm. as their t- as their film software. Um, what what are some um, what are some technology things that you think are you know, absolutes? Uh, obviously, we know that we got to film our games, but um, when it when it comes to using technology, I want to get I want to dive into how you started breaking teams down using film technology. So, as a high school coach, I guess Huddle would be your platform that you would start with. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what is your approach? Because here you are now. You're you're in the SEC. Okay, so 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 let's take a typical conference week. So I think it was like you had a game on Wednesday and Saturday. Was that how the SEC conference worked? We were typically at Kentucky there Tuesday, Saturday. Tuesday, Saturday. They're usually going to get that Super Tuesday game. So let's say you had a, a Arkansas, Florida game. All right. <clears throat> so from a game prep standpoint, scouting opponent, using all this technology. What, what was your process? How did you do that? So my, my last two seasons there, uh, last three seasons rather, you know, Coach Robick um, and I did every scout. Um, and so what we would do is I would do the advanced scouting. So I would work weeks in advance. Um, and so I would watch games and I would, uh, I would cut out clips of the offense. I would cut out clips how they're guarding ball screens, if they trap the post, uh, different trends that I would be able to pick out. Um, and then what I would do is, is I would, uh, you know, I'd label the clips and I, I kind of developed my own, 
uh, terminology that I ad- adopted from Coach Robic of how they, you know, how they, uh, you know, we, we never use the word uh, flare screen. We always called them fade screens, you know, for, and that's just one example. Um, you know, we, we called uh, the, the close the door plays, we, we called those squeeze plays and whatever it may have been. And so I always, I learned, used, I learned to speak their language and that's how I learned the game. And so uh, we would label clips and I would learn how to sort them together and then put them together and then through that I kind of developed a way that I can identify a team's playbook and then I would go through and I would put together the best three four clips of each one of those plays and then I would draw the plays up and so if we were going to play Arkansas on Tuesday then probably Thursday or Friday prior to that Coach Robick and I would get in his office we'd be the first ones there We'd sit there with a cup of coffee that morning, and we'd pop in the tape that I'd make, and he'd have a copy of the playbook that I'd hand-drawn up, and we'd go through them, and we'd talk about each play. He'd mark up corrections and his own notes and everything on on my plays, and I would take him through and, um, you know, hey, here's what they're running. Here's their main set. Here's their main series. Here's their options. If you do this, they're going to do that so on and so forth. And I wasn't great at it at first. I learned all this from watching him. Um, and so first two years, I wasn't doing that. I was strictly cutting out clips. He would give me, try to sort them together and give them back to him. And so that's how I learned. But it got to the point my last two, three years there um, that, you know, if we were going to play Arkansas on Tuesday, that Thursday before, he and I would do that. And so by the time he and I would finish that meeting, he would have every play that Arkansas was going to run. I had drawn it up for him, and then he would redraw it up because uh, Coach always liked things to be in, in Coach Robick's handwriting. He'd been like that for 20 years, and that's the way they do it. And um, so at that point, I'd, I'd be done. I'd move on to Florida, as you mentioned, and I'd start working on them. And um, so ideally, if, if we were going to play Arkansas on Tuesday – Whoever we had played that Saturday before that, the day, the moment that game is over with and Cal would come in the locker room either on the road or at home, uh, when that game's over with, he's got the scouting report of the plays drawn up. He's got a full written report with a brief synopsis and personnel and all that stuff. Bam, it's there. It's ready to go. And, he, and he's ready to move on to the next opponent. And so we'd have to really work, you know, many, many days in advance to make sure – uh, we had all that stuff prepared for him. I think that's – I just took something out of that that, that I know I'm going to bring back to our program. I, don't ask me why, but I've never thought about advanced scouting at the high school level. Mm-hmm. There's no reason you can't do it. Sure. I mean, everybody's films are on huddle. So, you know, high school coaches listening, I think that we could, you know, de- designate um, – you know, we usually all assign a coach a scout. So, you know – um, this coach has this team and this team and this team and this coach has these teams. Well, you know, you maybe if you have an extra coach, you could have a, a, an advanced scout uh, where he's working on games two weeks in advance. So when the scouting coach gets ready to work on that game, you know, he can take these primer notes, if you will, absolutely, uh, and, and say, okay, you know, this is this this helps. Uh, that's a good idea. The, the other thing I want to talk to you about, and this is, I'm being selfish here because I want to pick your brain because I know that that's what you really worked hard on, you know, to build your career when you were young at Kentucky, uh, is this, this, I want to dive deeper into the scouting process. When, when I scout a team, I, 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 I take the stats of a team and I try to, uh, I do personnel breakdowns, I do player tendencies all from stats at first. Sure. Uh, before I watch the first clip. Mm-hmm. Because I, I want to get a mental image of the team from statistics. Shooters, you know, non-shooters, rebounders, you know, you know what, what, what their tendencies defensively. Often, you know, you can you can get so much. Now, you got to dive deep into those numbers. And now as our game is evolving, the, the analytical side of statistics, I love how it's progressing. And it seems like every um, on Twitter every week I'm seeing a new analytic about basketball. And I'm like, oh, I love that. You sure. know? So right. I, I'm analytical by nature. But that's how I start, Coach. And then when I watch the film, the film validates exactly. the picture that I had in my mind from the statistical analysis. 
And I may be, I may have been wrong on a kid. Well, this kid, you know, no, this kid does this more. Okay, the film corrected me on that. But, you know, probably 70%, 80% of the time, I've got them nailed down for their tendencies and how they play and how they are trying to win games just from breaking down their stats. And I've noticed that in high school, I don't think a lot of coaches pay attention to the stats. Um, because, you know, if you go to KHSA's website, the statistical part of that is it's not very advanced. Sure. It's just the way it is. Um so what we did at Ashland Coach is we subscribed to the top tier of Huddle, and they break down within 12 hours all of our scouting videos, not just our games, but like let's say you're the head coach at Betsy Lane High School, and then and you played Pikeville. Well, let's say we're getting ready to play Betsy Lane in a few weeks. I'll go ahead and request that film exchange from Pikeville. They'll send it to me, and then I'll have Huddle break. They'll stat statistically break down that scout film for us and we pay for it um that way i've got all the analytics on that scout film and so that's how now at ashton we're able to sort of statistically analyze teams um and 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 this was the first year we've been able to do that but i think coaches um i think you've really got to pay attention to how what what your process is as you go into opponent scouting um, there has to be a routine to it. There has to be a rigor to it. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely, and, and not just for you, but when you become a head coach, it's got to be consistent within your staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, at Kentucky, you have a huge staff. You know, we have eight non-assistant coaching members that can do a number of different things. Uh, so, you, you have the luxury at a place like that to where maybe one of your assistant coaches does every scout and maybe doesn't recruit as much. Um, but when I came here – as an assistant for Sean, you don't have that luxury of one coach doing every scout because when you when you come to the mid-major level, your staff goes from maybe 12 to 6. And so assistant coaches have to do everything. You have to do academics. You have to do uh, individual workouts. You have to do scheduling. You have to do travel. You name it. You have to do a little bit of everything. And so when you can divide that up amongst your staff, like you're saying you do with, with yours, um, and, and – maybe even the schedule out or even the number of, of scouts per, per coach, that helps, but it has to be consistent. And so uh, I make sure that my staff knows exactly what I call every screen. They know exactly what stats I'm looking for. And anytime that I've hired anybody new, I've given them scouting reports that I've done. And I let them know that when you give me a report, I want it to speak to me the same way that I used to give it to Cal. And it has to be the same thing. And so one thing that I would do my last year uh, at Kentucky was, and I'll never forget, Kenny Payne, uh, you know, we were in staff meetings, and I would chime in from time to time. And I was the remembering guy at Kentucky. I didn't invent anything. I was the guy that was there day one who just remembered what we did day one because it was my obsession. And so it took that away from all the other coaches. They didn't have to remember those things. Their minds could be focused on recruiting. It could be focused on player development. And they didn't have to worry. They knew, here's this guy. He doesn't say a whole lot, but he's just over here remembering everything that comes out of our mouth. <laughs> and so um, I'll never forget, we're, we're going into our final year there at Kentucky. Uh, and, and Kenny looks over, and Kenny Payne is, 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 is unbelievable. He, he's going to be a big-time head coach whenever he decides to make that move. Uh, but he looks over at me one time and he says, Press, when are you going to start writing this stuff down and giving it to coach yourself? Because at that point, I couldn't get on the floor and coach. I couldn't yell from the sideline to the players very often. It would be, you know, kind of a, hey, you need to be doing this type thing. So it was always me standing next to an assistant and saying, Hey, listen, that, he didn't, he's not setting that screen right or whatever it may have been. And they would just regurgitate what I would say oftentimes, and then we built that trust there. But it got to a point, Kenny said, man, aren't you tired of us taking credit for things you say sometimes? And I just kind of laughed. I didn't care. He said, why don't you start writing this stuff down and just giving it to coach yourself? So I started doing my own different scouting report. I wasn't going to give him the same scouting report Coach Robick was going to do or anything like that. So I started doing what I called game notes. And I started writing up these notes. And it was, if I was going to start, if I was a head coach is what I asked myself, and I was getting ready to prepare for an opponent, what's the first thing I would want to read on them? 
And so I would give coach and I would make sure I kept it to one page. And it was real quick. We're getting ready to play Arkansas. Here's their record. Their last five games, they're two and three. They just lost this one on the road. Real quick, like a boom, boom, boom. Their rebounding margin is this versus ours has been this. They average X amount of turnovers a game. They force X amount of turnovers a game. They're getting to the line X amount of times a game. We've got to make sure we guard this Jason Mays guy that's doing this. I would put all that in there like real quick. And, and it was just like, a, to me, those were the, the standout stats, the most important things. And then I would put a quick defensive paragraph. This is how they're guarding ball screens. This is what they do in the post. This is their pickup point. They're going to press. They're going to do this on out-of-bounds under. And I would put all these things in there real quick. And so it got to the point to where a coach could just pick that up. He could read my one-page deal, and then it would segue into a much more detailed scout that he was going to get from Coach Robick. And you know what I mean? And so he was going to get the, the little pieces from me. And so when I became an assistant here for Sean, I did the same things for him. And then when I became a head coach, I made sure that my staff does the same thing. But you're exactly right about those stats. They're extremely important. They're going to tell the story. Yeah. It's no different than what we tell our players. Okay, The film doesn't lie, Okay, is what we always tell them. But the, the stats indict you. And, you know, you can walk into a film room the day after a game and you can you can look at a player and you can say, hey, look, man, you had, you had six turnovers and one assist. You went one of eight from the field. Like, these are your stats. You can't run from these. These are you. These are who you are. Now let's figure out how you develop these, what was good, what was bad. Um, and then you do the same thing with scouting. And I, you're exactly right. Those numbers, they're not going to lie. They're going to tell the story. Let me ask you a question. Um, what do you – what do you? I've seen you coach. You were you're obviously very professional. You're a suit and tie guy. Isn't it funny now in Division One? There are they're all they're, they're becoming more and more non suit and tie guys. Sure. In games. Yeah. But what is it that you put in your suit jacket? Like when you're on the floor, you're getting ready to tip. What's that card? What's that piece of paper that you keep in you that you refer to? What what is that for you? So I've got a, a it's our play card, and uh, Coach Maddox has has kept that for me. He probably should pass that along to somebody else, but he's, he's kept that for me. He gives it to me uh, early day of game, every every game. And so what I do with that is I'm going to basically, what, I, what I'm going to put on the board pregame, I put on there. What our goals are, uh, what keys offensively, what keys defensively. Uh, the goals being, you know, we want to hold a team to 40%. We want to be plus 10 rebounding, whatever that may be. And uh, there, there may be a specific stat for that game that's really important. You're playing AW's team at Eastern Kentucky. You say, all right, listen, we want to have 10, we want to have 10, to, uh, 10 or fewer turnovers against the press. They're going to turn you over some. But if we feel like we're going to get to, you know, 14, then they're going to win. You know, whatever that stat may be. Um, and then I have out-of-timeout plays. And so uh, I'll do out-of-timeout man-to-man plays. I do out-of-timeout, uh, out-of-bounds under, side-out, and then some zone plays. Um, and so I've, I've always got those. They're just going to be a variation of a play that we already have. And so that when we go into a timeout, I'm going to meet with my staff. I'm going to grab my card. I'm going to glance at it. I'm going to have thought about, you know, where are we at? Right side facing, out of bounds under. You know, assistant's usually going to tell me that. And I already know, boom, when I walk in there, here's what we're running. And so the first thing I do is I'll, I'll draw the play and I'll say, all right, guys, you know, we're, we're running Vegas. And so, at the very least, the guys know where to freaking line up on the floor when they go out there because it's the same play we've always ran. But maybe instead of a pin down, we're going to go with a, with a rip screen and we're going to look for something different. We're going to wrinkle that out of it or we're going to bump a screen or we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of a, a swinging it into a stagger, maybe we'll fake a swing and go to a pin down dribble handoff. And so I like to wrinkle plays that we already have out of timeout. And that's so smart because, you know, as prideful as we want to be and say, well, we're going to remember that when the time, when we're in crunch time with seven seconds to go down one, you got a timeout and your side out of bounds, you know, I, I'm going to be good at that moment. But the, there's so much, very, there's so many variables that go into that moment. When you have that preparation, we're like, look, you know, here it is. If I'm signed out of bounds, like I said, this, these are my two options right here. Boom. That makes it, that's efficient. Well, you know? and you're going to draw it with confidence. Yeah. And when you draw it with confidence and it's already familiar with the guys, um, then they're going to go out there and they're going to run it with confidence. Yeah, that's good stuff. Okay, let's uh, let's move forward here. We're 37 minutes into this. And this is, uh, 
I, re- I was looking forward to this conversation with you, particularly for this uh, discussion. When you were you became an assistant here at Moorhead State um, with uh, Sean Woods, who is uh, currently the head coach at Southern University yep. uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and uh, Sean uh, had a departure midseason, and you were hired as the interim coach. Uh, at that point in time, which uh, helped me here, this is 2017? 16. 16. At that point in time, you, your team was 2-7. And, seven. and um, you ended up going, uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but uh, you won almost twice as many games as you lost throughout the conference season once you got a rolling that same season. So you turned it, you flipped it. Um, and they rewarded you with that um, by naming you the head coach at Moorhead State University. Um, but if you look at the statistics, the interim guy hardly ever gets the job. And I know this because I was in the same situation at Kentucky Wesleyan when uh, my mentor and coach and Happy Osborne um, suddenly departed after after seven games uh, deep into our season. We were one and six, and uh, I had to take over. And uh, that is a... It's one of the, it is the toughest thing I've ever been a part of in coaching. So my first question to you is, you leave the AD's office, you're the interim guy. Now you got to go meet with your team. Do you remember what you told your team at that point in time? You know, a, a little bit. Um, man, it was, it was such a weird time here, too, because that season we, we were actually serving an APR penalty. Um, so we, we – we, we had to take two days off a week. So in Division One basketball, you're allowed 20 hours a week and you're required one off day. So that entire season, we were required two off days and we only had 18 hours a week. Obviously, you're into the season. Each game day is three hours. And so we were limited on what we could do with them. And um, so I actually could not have a team meeting that day. That was a required off day that night when I got named interim coach for, by our AD. Wow. And so what they allowed us to do uh, was to have a meeting with the players while they were present, and it was just a very quick, it could not be an X's and O's type meeting, which it didn't need to be at that point anyway. Uh, but I just remember telling the guys that the, the number one thing I was going to do was make it about them and that we were going we to finish this season and that we had enough. We had enough good players um, and that I would put a plan together to make us be successful and that I was going to keep everything about them and their experience. And that was it. And I said, um, we've been off for two days because obviously there was a lot of stuff going on and we hadn't practiced for two days with the guys who weren't allowed. And um, so I said, tomorrow we're going to practice twice. We're going to go at 9 a.m. and we're going to go at 4. And uh, I said, each practice is going to be an hour and 15 minutes, I promise. And that's going to be what it is. And um, so we came in the next day. And I remember I I was more nervous thinking back for my first practice as a head coach than I was coaching my first game, which was at Pitt three days later. 100%. Not even close. (laughs) I was so nervous. I mean, I probably went through an entire notebook of of practice plans because I wanted to make sure – that I was taking the good things that Sean had done, and there's a ton of them. Sean's a phenomenal coach. Um, and, 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 but I wanted to make sure that I was changing things to the way I felt like they needed to be done and in a way that the players would respond. Um, you know, with Sean, he, he has extremely tough practices, lots of live, lots of scrimmage, and that's great, uh, very intense. And, and oftentimes they go very long. But that's typically okay because the players you're playing, they enjoy the scrimmage. They enjoy the competition part of it. But practices were long and they were grueling. Um, And so one thing that I said I had to do is I said, man, i got to figure out a way to make this a little more fun for the guys. But at the same time, we can't lose the element of there's some things we're going to have to change that we're going to have to do differently from a a schematic standpoint if we're going to win at some point this year. so we were a switching team. 
under Sean those past couple of years, and I think Coach still does that at Southern. He's had a ton of success with it, with his pressure defense, full court. I mean, once you get into half court, he does not care about a mismatch. He cares about a no match. And just hard, aggressive switching, not just ball screens and handoffs, switching off the ball, and, and just they're going to take you out of what you're doing. Well, we had a little bit smaller team that season than what we had had the year before when we went to the finals of the CBI and won 23 games. We had, we had some small guards. Uh, we had a little guard named Xavier Mooney, who's 6'1", tough, shifty, ended up finishing second. That's my interim season for player of the year. Uh, we had a, a, a combo guard who was 6'3", 170 pounds. It was, it was unbelievably skilled and vision, but he wasn't physical. So switching just wasn't as good for that team. And I, I think we'd have gotten away from it had, had Sean come back as well just because our personnel wasn't going to fit it. Basically, our good players were picking up fouls they shouldn't have been picking up because we were switching too much. And so I walked in day one, and I said, guys, we're going to practice for an hour and 15 minutes in this one right here and we're going to compete our asses off. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start working towards getting away from being a switching team. And so you got to think at that point, everybody was on our roster. We had never taught them how to guard a screen without switching. it. They knew how to switch every type of screen, and there's an art to that. Um, so we, I said, if I'm coaching against Moorhead State and I want to exploit a mismatch, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go 5-2 pin down. I'm going to throw that sucker in the post. I'm going to jam it down your throat. So day one, we drilled. Here's how you guard a pin down. Here's how you take away the curl. You chase outside hip. You get three guys to the curl. And I took drills that we had done with Cal to build that stuff up. And uh, so we went into the very – and then I changed one of one of our plays. You know, Sean's a big high-low guy, which I am now too. And uh, I tweaked it a little bit um, with as, as to our spacing and then how we ended the play with some ball screen. Kept the same name with it and everything because our guys were so familiar with it. And um, we just tweaked those couple things. And so we went into the Pittsburgh game, gave them a great game. I think we lost by nine or something a couple days later on the road. And then we came back. And so each practice, I would teach the guys a new screen as to how we weren't going to switch it. And so I said, all right, well, if we know how to guard pin downs and, and we know how to guard pin outs because we're going to guard them the same way, we better learn how to guard fade screens and rip screens in case we run into somebody that tries to run the wheel on us. So we did that. And so we went on and we went on. And each, each week, uh, I, would, I would teach the guys how we would, we would guard new things. And we changed our lineup. You know, at that point in time, we had a little small point guard um, who, who was uh, involved in the, in the deal with Sean. He decided he was going to transfer. So we had to shift our two guard over to the point and so on and so forth. Um, we took... Uh, one of our assistants at the time suggested that we take uh, one of our wings who had, had been a role player off the bench. He wasn't the most skilled player. Put him in the starting lineup so that he could really cement a defensive identity for us and toughness. And he was the ultimate role player. He just did what he needed to do. So those are some of the changes that we made uh, from that point on. And it, it was not until we got into conference play in January that our team knew how to guard everything without switching it. So you got to think, you're taking two days off a week. You don't have time to teach everything in one day, and you're trying to keep the practices short, fun. you got two less guys on your roster that had transferred at the break, so we, only, we were only playing seven guys. So we had to figure out how do we teach them, be efficient, keep it fun, keep it competitive, make them want to come back for more, and then how do we stay healthy with it. So that was some of the obstacles that we had during that year. So as you now you're, you're the head coach. So let's talk about your learning curve as a head coach. And I want you to sort of I – mean, your, your experience is as a Division One head coach. But speak to this in terms of high school coaches that they can relate to what you were feeling. Two questions. One, what during your learning curve as becoming a, of becoming a head coach, what was easier than you thought it was, than you thought it was going to be? And what was the hardest thing? What was way harder than you thought it was going to be? Um, whether it was X and O's, whether it was player relationships, whether it was administration dealing with your, your school and your university, what was easier than you thought it was going to be and what was harder than you thought it was going to be? Um, that, I think the easier, the, the portion of the question, the easier is, is probably the, the toughest um, for me to answer. 
you know, I, I think something that I, I thought maybe would be difficult that came natural and came very easy was that was the recruiting as a head coach. Uh, going into a living room and sitting down with a family and, uh, and, and hosting visits and having uh, kids and their families out to my house. You know, I'd never done it from that position. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't know how, how it was going to be. But that's something that I, that I just felt more comfortable with than I had anticipated. Um, and I think the big key with that was just making sure that you're being you, you're being yourself, um, and, you're, and you're investing in the relationships, not being a salesman. Um, and so that was something that was probably a little easier for me because I think oftentimes when you become a, a Division One head coach, you're, you're the CEO of a program, and so you think you've got to really sell everything all the time. And there's a certain element of it that you have to do that. But I think our approach is is we're going to be more real. We're going to be more authentic, and that's going to be our sale. That's going to be our appeal. And ultimately, we're going to build trust through having truth in all of our relationships. And uh, that's kind of been the easier thing for me. And it's relieved some pressure from having to be a salesman all the time because I'm I'm not good at that. That's not who I am. Um, What was hardest? You know, the hardest thing, I think two things. Um, Number one, who to listen to. Good point. You know, who to listen to. I think when I was interim coach, you know the assistants who I had worked with that now I was I was I was in charge of each day. Um, when I was the interim coach, it was kind of I had nothing to lose. I mean, and when I say that, I tell you, Jason, on the back of my desk right now, I've got a letter from the HR department, Morehead State, that says, "On this date, you will not have a job." And that letter sits on my desk and I look at it every single day because that was a constant reminder for me when I took over as interim coach for Sean that when this year is over, when March 30th rolls around, there's not, you're not going to have insurance for your family. You're not going to have all these things. So if you're going to do it, you got to do it your way. And I was much better in that year of just going with my gut and doing what I thought and I coached with more confidence. Um, but then I was so excited when I got to be a head coach for the opportunity to hire my own staff and get guys that I know and I trust. And um, that's tough when you're, when you're a young coach because you want to hear everybody's ideas and you put value in everybody's ideas. But oftentimes what that does is it takes away from what you really want to do. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget uh, J.T. Burton worked for me for one year. I love J.T. J.T. was a volunteer assistant for us at St. Catherine. Yeah. He saved my life one day. Is that right? He found me passed out of my house from physical fatigue. I hadn't slept in three days. I was wow. on the road recruiting and scouting, and I missed a workout. And he's like, that's not like Jason. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, yeah. but I, I love J.T., and he runs to my house. He had this little old cheap hatchback that was falling apart. Yeah. And he picked me up in my living room, and he put me in his car and took me to the hospital. I woke up two days later in the hospital. Wow. JT Burton saved my life. JT, uh, man, he, he's been so good for me. And so I wanted to hire a head coach. And uh, JT left a great situation at Motlow where he had a lot of good players, and he came up here. Um, and, and he came up here to help me. And he was only here for one year, and he's now the head coach down at Tusculum. But I, when I talk to JT now, every time I talk to him, I remind him, I wish I'd have listened to you more when you worked with me. And the thing that he would say, he would always say to me, what do you want to do? And I wasn't very good at taking that advice because I valued my assistants who I had hired because we were friends, because I know how smart they were and probably smarter than me that you know i'd be like damn that's a great idea maybe we should do it that way Mm -hmm. you know and uh i I got away from what i thought we should be doing all the time you know what i mean and uh so that was the hardest thing for me and and that segues into i think when, when i became a head coach when you get the program yourself it's like buying an empty lot in a neighborhood you get the opportunity to do whatever you want with it. And that can be overwhelming. 
However, when you take over as an interim coach from Sean, who had already had a great culture put into place, our kids were tough. They played hard. They practiced hard. Like, he already had that in place. All I had to do was, was make it to where it was fun to come in every day and tweak some things X's and O's wise. And so it's like buying a, a, a nice house that you just want to change some fixtures and flooring and stuff in. Um, so when you've got to buy that lot and you've got to put that house on there yourself, it's a little more difficult. And you got to think, you know, you're listening to all kinds of different contractors telling you how you should do this and how you should do that. It can be overwhelming. Um, so through that, I became a little too complicated year one. I became so detailed because I do challenge my staff. I ask them a lot of questions and I love their input. The problem was I was just taking in too much of that input. And it would be to the point of, coach, how do you want to teach these closeouts? Or how do you want to teach our feet? How do we want to do these things? Well, the guys that I worked for, we never worried about any of that stuff. It was all effort. It was all we're gonna we're gonna you know play really hard to where these details aren't as important. Um, so you know it made me overthink those things, and through overthinking them, I overtaught them, I overemphasized them, and then I lost some of the things that I thought was most that I knew was most important. So year one head coach that was that was tough. Coach, if you were a high school coach and you had talented players that could play at the next level. Um, what would you be doing to get them exposure to people like yourself? You know, I, I think that's a, the, the big thing is picking up the phone and making a call, I think has more impact for me um, and, with, and with my staff. Um, and I know not all high school coaches have um, the contacts and things like that with coaches so that's not a a blanket for everybody but if you've got it that's going to make a bigger impact um you know i get emails all the time from coaches and i try to take a look at them as best i can to be honest with you that you're going to have a lot more success getting in touch with an assistant and and making sure that it's a little bit more of a personal email it's not a blanket it's not a mass email that has every coach in the OVC on it. That's not going to get much attention. Um, but it's, it's got a little bit more of a personal touch to it. Uh, and that you're getting in touch with the assistants more than anything else because the assistants are going to do a better job of screening that, giving it a real look, and then figuring out, okay, is this player somebody I can take to my head coach? Um, so that's, that's one thing that I think that you can really do in terms of getting your kid's name to a, a Division One coach. Uh, how do high school coaches figure in to your program here at Moorhead State? You know, they're really important. Um, and, and I say that because if I ever get a, an email that's that's not just promoting a player about a high school from a high school coach that you want to come to practice, you want me to send you plays, you want me to try to connect you with, with something, I respond to all of those. Uh, and I make sure that I do that, even if I have no idea who it is. Um, our practices are always open. I've never had a closed practice. If you ever want to come to a practice, you want to come to a shoot-around, you're more than welcome to do that and take notes. Uh, we'll give you film. We'll give you plays, whatever it is. Uh, I'm always up for, for that. And so high school coaches are really important for that. And I think – as I've become a head coach and, and just going back on what I said a moment ago about being simpler with my approach with things, I think there's a lot to be learned from high school coaches with that because you don't have as much time with your kids. They're probably not as skilled. They're not as athletic. And so you have to keep things a little bit simpler um, in, in terms of being able to, to, do the, to, to translate that to your team. Um, so those are things that are really important to me coming from high school coaches. And at the end of the day, we're all teachers, you know, True that. And, and I don't think there's really anybody better uh, than high school coaches at teaching the game um, than, than them. You know, Division One coaches, we have a lot of things on our plate. We're certainly teachers, and I think all of us that we would like to be able to do that more than anything else. But in the grand scheme of things, teaching the game of basketball 365 days out of the year is, is going to really be about 40% of what we do, if that. You know, you're, you're recruiting, 
Uh, you're, you're dealing with boosters. You're dealing with the community and, and campus. You're handling parents and players, and you're, you're uh, promoting and marketing your program. You're doing all these other things that you just don't have as much time to teach. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from high school coaches about the efficiency of how you do that. All right, coaches, um, that wraps up our time with Coach Spradlin here at Moorhead State University. Um, Stay tuned for the outro of this podcast, and you'll have uh, contact information of how to reach their basketball staff uh, here at MSU. Coach, I'd like to thank you so much uh, for participating in this, and uh, I know there's going to be a lot of coaches that take a lot of value out of this talk. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, anytime I can do anything like this, I'd love to do it. I I just love the game. Uh, I love where I'm from. I love connecting with coaches. And so any way that we can do that to share the game and help one another uh, and, and to grow the game, I want to be a part of that. All right. Thank you again, Coach. Hey, Coaches, thanks for listening today. Hopefully you found your takeaway um, through the discussion I had with Coach Spradlin and Moorhead State. My goal is for you to find that takeaway to make your program better tomorrow than it is today. I know my takeaway is I'm going to dedicate a member of our staff to do advanced scouting. So with that being said, if you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at Coach Mays Pod or at Coach J Mays, and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks for listening to the CoachMays.com podcast. 